Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The heat is on Saigon. It's another hot summer, Kev. One might say it's 110 in the shade. You get it? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I do, Rob. I do. Mm. And how do you cool off, my friend? Well, I say dress light, and where best to begin lightening your attire than your wallet? Oh, and how would one do that? Simple, Kev. To be one of the cool kids, become one of our Patreon supporters and help keep us on the air. Head on over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we are doing and bring Bringing the legend stories to your ears. Rob. Yes, Kevin. You aren't wearing any pants. Mm. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram, at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. Considering the father of today's guest wrote the books to such musicals as Fiorello, Tenderloin, and I Can Get It For You Wholesale, it seems like a natural progression for him to follow in his father's footsteps. Trading in a law degree for a typewriter, today's guest has written the books to such musicals as Pacific Overtures, Assassins, Big, Contact, Bounce, Take Flight, Roadshow, Happiness, and the 1987 revival of Anything Goes. Not to mention stints on Sesame Street, time as an East Asian history major, and as president of the Dramatist Guild. So many hats, so Uh many hats. Tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Hal Prince, Stephen Sondheim, Mike Ockren, Susan Stroman, Jerry Zaks, and so many others. Here is the wordsmith of Broadway, Mr. John Weidman. <laughs> Hi, guys. Thanks hey, for that intro. Thank you, Thank for, being you here. for being here. You made here. me sound like a very interesting person. You Let's are. Say, I guess you we'll are. find out if I am. <laughs> You'll tell us in an hour <laughs> if this intro is correct. No, he's, he's absolutely fantastic. So, John, where did you grow up? I grew up in Westport, Connecticut, and, and uh, you know, uh, my dad... And my mom did, I think, uh, what a lot of people did immediately after World War II, which was move to the suburbs. Mm. Um, um, I've got a brother, Jeffrey, who's a year and a half older than I am. Um, and we had uh, pretty much both of us just been born, although Jeffrey was born first. But, I, you know, my dad was uh, a totally New York guy. Mm. Um, and so I've always wondered what the impulse was which took him out of the city and into the country. And as soon as the opportunity arose to move back into New York, he took it when I was sort of 12, 13 years old. Oh. And we all remained in New York for the rest of his life, my life, and everybody else's life. So really, New Yorkers is really... Yeah, yeah. It was, yourself. you know, I mean, I was... Uh, I had the advantage, or it felt like the advantage, I think it was, of, you know, playing Little League and 
running around outdoors till I was 12, yeah. and then moved into New York and started running around indoors at a variety of different theaters and museums and you know places like that. Yeah. What so, a cool cool way to grow up, though. My God. Yeah, yeah. It was a very no. It was it, the balance between the two. I think was great. Yeah. And um, uh, you know, I I don't. I actually feel fortunate to have had that kind of outside the city, outside the arts, mm -hmm. outside, who's your father and what does he do and who's your mom? I mean, no, there was none of that. It was just, you know, you, yeah, I was a kid in the country, right. you know. That's fabulous. Playing shortstop for the gold sand and gravel Jaguars was the most important part of my life. I was going to, you didn't want to go pro. <laughs> I, you know what? Every kid wants to go pro when he's in Little League. But I had a moment, yep. I had one of those epiphanies where I looked around and I thought, you know what? There's nobody from uh, Westport uh, currently playing in the major leagues, and I'm not even close to being the best baseball player in Westport. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to work out. It's like <laughs> if that's a career goal, I think I should rethink Next. it. Next, <laughs> yeah. thinking. Yes. thinking. Yes. Were you because your dad was in the business? Uh, you know, were you growing up with all these show people around you a lot? Well, I mean, no. Here's the thing: he was not in uh, the theater at all until we moved into New York. And in fact, the reason to move into New York was because. He had gone to work on Fiorello, right. uh, and you know he could have done that from Westport, but I think everybody wanted a reason to move back to New York. He was a novelist, and so you know he would get up in the morning uh, and disappear into his study, and then he'd come out at the end of the day. So there was no sense of, of sort of glamour or right. anything else. There, he, he had, and my mom had a lot of literary friends in Westport, um, uh, but guys who wrote. Uh, and women who wrote books for grown-ups <clears throat> didn't feel glamorous or important. It was just like, oh, you know, John Hersey's coming to dinner. Okay, uh, why not? Yeah. You know. But um, it was only when we got to New York and um, writing became a public event uh, that I, I got a taste of this sort of the excitement and the glamour and the visibility, for better or for worse, mm -hmm. of doing something in front of a constant audience. Mm -hmm. What made your dad want to go into writing for, for musical theater? He'd been such a successful novelist. and You know, he was asked. He was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making a little bit of this up because I had a conversation with him about it, but I can't quite remember what uh, exactly what the sequence of events was. But he, you know, my dad was a total New York guy, and that's pretty much what he had written about his whole life. And, uh, you know, Hal Prince and Bobby Griffith decided they were going to produce a musical about Fiorello LaGuardia. Mm -hmm. And I think my dad seemed like a, an interesting go-to idea for somebody to write the book. And he mm -hmm. would ultimately partner with George Abbott. Um, so I think he got pulled into the theater rather than deciding that that was something he wanted to do. He didn't have a uh, you know, drawer full of unproduced plays. Yeah. Um, so he did that, and, and uh, you know, it, was a, it was a great success. Won the Tony Award, Pulitzer Prize. Um, so he did a couple more. Uh, I mean, you know, um, for the benefit of your listeners, this is the way musicals got done in those days. Yeah, I, I mean, say, Fiorello I mean, was done in the 59-60 in the season. Tenderloin, same team, uh, was done in the 60-61 season. There wasn't six years of workshops. They just did the next show. Hal had a rule uh, that um, on the day of an opening, he would have a meeting with his team, which was working on the next show, so that there would be this sense of flow and continuity from one show into the next. And um, Wholesale, which was produced by David Merrick, was two seasons later, yeah. but, 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 you know, which, you know, wasn't a, a, a long wait, 
But again, you know, you did three musicals in, in, in four years, and then another one which was uh, not successful. It was kind of a, it's not on the wall at Joe Allen, but it could be. Maybe it is someplace. It was a musical called Pousse Café, with, with, which was based on the third angel, and it had a, a, a stormy history out of town, and it kind of opened and closed, and he went, huh. you know, it was sort of like, okay, that's enough of that, I'm just going to go back to, to writing novels. But so that, that, that the period of time in which, he, in which he wrote books for musicals was five or six years long, but mm-hmm. he did four shows, yeah. and, which seems crazy now, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and successful. I mean, like yeah. they were, they were, they did, did well. Yeah, yeah, they were. These were all, you know. I mean, they, they I mean, Fiorello was the was the was the great. Tenderloin is a is a is a is kind of incomplete in many ways, not fully satisfying show. But it has a score by Bach and Harnick that's spectacular. It's beautiful. It's yeah. beautiful. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And did you get to go and see some of the rehearsals, or go around backstage, or were you so involved in the baseball that you? I would. I would. Uh, I, I. You know, it's an interesting question. I don't remember ever attending a rehearsal or a run through. Um, I remember seeing the shows a lot once they were up on stage. Sure. Uh, you know, and um, I, remember going, I remember going to the opening night of uh, Fiorello, and uh, you know, my brother and I were fairly young, so we sort of went. I guess the party was at Sardi's, mm-hmm. and so we were there for a while, and everybody was excited. And then we were sent home to bed, and then Pousse Cafe. There was also a party at Sardi's, and uh, so we went to that. And it became clear after about twenty minutes that everybody was leaving, oh. and so that you know, that those days that meant oh. Okay, somebody read the New York Times, and it's, the party's not going to be much of a party. But yeah, so I mean, you know, um, um, my brother and I were not part of it except to drop in on it when my dad's work was done. But it was, look, if you were 12, 13 years old, um, it was exciting. Yes. Yeah. You know, it was, it was so public. It was, you know, yeah. people, especially with Fiorella, you know, that my friends at school wanted house seats and stuff. You know? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't exactly know what house seats were, right, but, I, right. but I knew they wanted them. You know? so and you were going to learn soon enough. And I was going to learn soon enough, yeah. Uh, so that was great. How would you describe your father's writing style for someone who maybe have never, has never read a Jerome Weidman book or, or libretto? It's interesting. He, I mean, his first, uh, his first novel, which in many ways remained his most celebrated, uh, was published in 1937, and it was called, I can, it was, I can get a few also. Yeah. And it's the first person account of a, of a bad guy in the garment district behaving badly and getting away with it. Mm-hmm. My dad grew up on the Lower East Side, you know, um, uh, his parents were first generation immigrants, and you kind of had to be tough to kind of punch your way out of where he was born. And he experimented with different avenues. I mean, he, he went to law school for a couple of years. He did this. But he, he, he found himself writing stories just because he had a, a, a natural talent for it. And, and he would, he, you know, they wound up getting published in places like The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And so writing became uh, an easier way out of the Lower East Side mm-hmm. Than what something which would have seemed like an easier way, which was getting a degree as a teacher, or becoming an attorney, but his writing style was always he was a tough, tough, tough guy, and that's reflected uh, in his in his prose. Mm. Do you remember the first Broadway show you saw? Peter Pan. Yeah, wow, look at that. <laughs> yeah, Peter Pan. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we like I said, we lived in the country, and every now and then, uh, my brother and I would be brought into town for an event. Yeah. And sometimes the event was the Museum of Natural History, or the event might have been a ball game. But I remember we were brought in to see Peter Pan. And the other one I remember as part of that part of my life was the Music Man. I have a very vivid memory of, of 
the Music Man. I didn't know how unusual the opening number was, but I, as a kid, I experienced it as being, as being, wow, look, there's a bunch of guys sitting on chairs pretending to be on a railroad train, and there's no music, and it was, and I, I remember that a lot, you know, and I'm sure there are a couple of other shows that I saw, but it wasn't really until we, we moved into New York that I started going to the theater all the time. I think I saw, I know I saw Lil Abner, which made a huge impression on me, and I think Probably I was in the country. I mean, it's, that honestly is the the most vivid experience I had of a of a musical as a kid. Was sitting you know in the orchestra someplace and the curtain went up and there was this you know primary color scrim because yeah. it was based on a cartoon, right. and um, which was suddenly there was light on it and it had the show's got a great score and it had a great overture and I remember I didn't think about it but I remember going feeling ooh. You know, yeah, yeah, that yeah. ooh, and, and you know, that, that that ooh is still something you get in the musical theater that you don't get anyplace else. You don't always get it, but, <laughs> but when you get it, it's, it a, it's a good moment, right. right? When you were in high school, what did you think you were going to be doing with the rest of your life? Well, I, I didn't think about it a lot, but to the extent that I did, you know, like uh, a lot of kids, I was just putting one foot yeah. in front of the other. Yeah. I, had, I certainly had no ambitions to be an artist, to be a writer, or to be in theater. Um, you know, I wanted to go to a good college, mm -hmm. which I did. I got on Harvard. I spent four happy years at Harvard. Um, there was a kind of a, a sloppy idea at the time that if you wanted to extend your liberal arts education because you didn't really know what you wanted to do, there were certain law schools that mm. fit that bill, and Yale, which was the best school in the country, was one of mine. So ultimately, after I you know, um, taught elementary school for a period of time to, <laughs> to stay out of Vietnam, I wound up at Yale, which was a really interesting experience. And, but while I was there, I had the sort of obligatory summer job as an attorney, and I thought, you know what? Law school is great, but I don't want to be a lawyer. And I, was, I, just, I did not want to get up in the morning every day and go do... Other people in the office were having a ball. I didn't experience it that way. So I went back to... New Haven, mm -hmm. to ponder what I would do next. Because as I said, I was not driven by any, any, any wild desire to come to New York and write anything. And the, the two things that, um, at, at that point in my life, were particularly important to me were baseball, still, and the theater. Because after we moved into New York, I had taken myself to the theater all the time. I just, I, I sort of just, I fell into being an audience member. It's like one week I was, playing shortstop in Little League, and the next week I was seeing Morris Evans as Captain Shot over in Heartbreak House. I just went to the theater all the time on weekends. Mm -hmm. So I'm back in New Haven. I thought, well, let's see. How can I create other pathways myself? And I wrote a letter to Bowie Kuhn, who was then the commissioner of baseball. And I said, I'm a law student. Do you have internships? And I got a form letter back saying no. <laughs> and I wrote a letter to Hal Prince, who I had met when I was a kid, Basically asking the same question. So your producer's office, you, and um, uh, but I appended a P.S. I said, you know, I, I've been thinking about writing a play about uh, Japan, about Commodore Perry's expedition to open Japan, and you know, if you haven't met, I'd love to talk to you about that. And I sort of had, but not in any serious way. Mm -hmm. So I got the same letter back saying no to the internship part, but uh, saying come into town, and I'd love to talk to you about the idea for the play. And I, I, ha I have to say, Hal was, was and remains, you know, 
accurately described as somebody who is sort of saturated with curiosity and is totally open to working with new people mm -hmm. and, and talking to them about what they're interested in. And sort of that's where, so that's where Pacific Overtures came from. I went in to talk to Hal, and um, he said, yeah, he said, that, that's interesting, you should go write that. I said, um, okay. And he said, and, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a one-page agreement to sign. He clearly was like really interested in the, in the fundamental idea. And so all of a sudden, going back to New Haven and sitting in the Yale Law School Library and writing a play, which I'd never done before and didn't know how to do, was a real thing. I mean, when I describe it now, it actually doesn't seem like a real thing, but, <laughs> but it was at the time. And so um, that's what I did. I know what a play looked like, yeah. right? You can't see you, many, yeah. You, you, and yet, well, on the page, you, you type the name of the character in capital letters, then right. you hit the return bar, the typewriter, which is what we use in those days, yeah. and you type what they say, and then you space it and do it again. So I, you know, I sat down and did something. The, you know, when you do something for the first time, you, and you don't know that you don't really know how to do it. Yes. You do it with a kind of energy and enthusiasm, which can, which is liberating. You only get to do that once. And so that was that was uh, the first draft of, of a straight play version of Pacific Overtures, oh written in the Yale Law School Library. Oh. And, uh, and did you then just mail it to him and say, "All right, Hal, here's my play. Well, do you like it?" He had said when it, you know when you when you're finished, you know. Sent it to me, and um, so I, I did that, mm -hmm. and expecting you know that by return mail I'd get a letter saying something, and um, I guess how I'd just gone into rehearsal with night music, mm -hmm. and so time passed, as we say, yes. a lot of time passed, and then um, one day I came back to my apartment in New Haven, and there was an actual telegram shoved under the door. Wow. Because nobody, I mean, I was never in my apartment. Right. Uh, answering machines, I guess, it existed, but I didn't have one. And so Hal had been trying to call me, but he couldn't reach me. So he eventually sent a telegram saying, I read your play, I like it, why don't you come in and we'll talk about it some more. And then we did a reading, and, and uh, he was actually going to produce it as a straight play. I was coming in from New Haven going to auditions. And then he, I got a call, he said, you know what, I... It feels to me like it wants to be a musical, not a straight play. What I discovered afterwards was that Boris Aronson, who was Hal's brilliant designer, yeah. couldn't figure out a way to design it. And that made Hal, that was like a tell to Hal. That was like, eh, maybe something's not right here. And um, I mean, in fact, I, I found the play later on and read it, and I, I, I sort of caught a break. I actually, because it's not a very good play. Mm. But the material was sort of teed up to become a really, really interesting musical, uh, which many people feel it is, and yeah. some other people don't. But but it was a it was a great experience. What was the original play like? It was a, you know I had I had uh, arrived in college with the intention of uh, majoring in modern European history, but I was required, there was a departmental requirement, you had to take a course outside the area you were going to focus on. So I took this sort of the survey course in East Asian history, because I went to a very good high school, it's like Asia didn't exist, I and mean, it was never meant, you know, I mean, literally didn't exist. And so every, this was all new material, and I was particularly interested in, in modern Japan, and so I sat down to write what really kind of felt like the beginning of a kind of a naturalistic, well-made play about a couple of 
sailors who were with Perry when he arrived in Japan. And when I talked to Hal about that, he said, you know, he said, I think, I think if there's a way to flip the story so we're looking at it from the point of view of the people who are being invaded mm -hmm. as opposed to the invaders, and I said, oh yeah, that's smart. And Hal had already, Hal already had it in mind, you know, you could see one of those uh, comic strip light bulbs go yes. up over his head, that there might be a way to make a marriage on stage between um, the conventions of American musical theater and the great big colorful conventions of kabuki theater. Yeah. So that if we were going to tell this story, you know, from a Japanese point of view, he would have access to all that stuff on stage. So that's really, the, you know, and then when we, when we, when we started to talk about it as a musical, what had been, in terms of the events on stage, um, the entire play kind of became the first act, and then it opened up into a whole different area in the second act. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I know, it's crazy, right? Well, like, just wild that, like, I know. he was like, and let's, who should we get to write the music and lyrics? Like, yeah. let's, after all this string of hits, Sondheim, he's not well, doing anything. It was let's... the next, you know, I mean, Stephen Howe were, were um, the, that fundamental collaboration, you know, created this extraordinary collection of shows. Mm -hmm. And the book writers all were all essential because the book writer always is essential. But the fundamental creative collaboration was between Hal and Steve. So it's like, it's like, let me talk to Steve and and persuade him that he wants to write the score <laughs> to this show. And Steve, initially, Steve was like, yeah, I don't know, no. So, and but Hal is, um, Hal's persuasive, yeah. and so yeah, we all wound up working on it. Together, it was great. How was the was very much the the hub of the wheel in terms of the way in which that show was created, um, uh, and you know all the meetings, all the conversations went through how not not in a way which is I have trouble telling you how, but in a way which is not the same. I think is the way in which directors have become a kind of a primary authorial presence in the creation of many musicals now, this felt different. And it may have felt different because I was a kid and I didn't know what I was doing. But, um, but how was, you know, um, working with him was thrilling. And um, he had a real, the part of him that people don't talk about that much anymore is what a brilliant producer he was, you know? Because his, you know, what, what he's accomplished as a director hasn't eclipsed that, but it kind of has because he stopped being his own producer. Yeah. But um, he, the way he managed that that show, you know, which we all loved it in New York. We got to Boston with a lot of problems, and to watch him both, not just as the director but as the producer, manage the way in which the show was going to get rethought and reshaped and rewritten through D.C. and then back to New York was really something. It was really impressive. How, what were some of the problems that, that you had on the road? The show was too long. Yeah. And um, it was, uh, it, it's as if it, it held the audience sort of at arm's length. Um, it was very difficult for the audience to engage with it. It had a cast of actors whom they had never seen before, among other things. Yeah. You know, Angela Lansbury was not like standing over there right. playing the show again. And um, uh, so there was a, there was a, and, and Hallett had a really smart idea, which turned out to be problematic, which was that since the audience didn't really know any of the history associated with the story we were telling, we were going to tell mostly, we were going to tell the story of these two guys, one of whom was a traditional samurai, one of whom had been to the United States, 
they would trade places as the story developed, but the show was sort of decorated with scenes and songs which kind of left that story behind to give the audience a kind of what was meant to be a sort of a collage exciting experience of, oh, look, this is how they exchange gifts when the Americans came ashore. And that stuff tended to interrupt the story, I think add to the, to the, to the problems some of the audience had hanging on to it. So, it, I mean, we were figuring it out. It was a great big thing to try and figure out on the road. But, uh, you know, I think for the most part we did, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. So uh, when you went into rehearsals, do you go in with an outline of what's supposed to happen, or do you come in with a fully fleshed script and go, song goes here, song goes there? I've never, uh, I should slow down before I say never, I don't think I've ever gone into rehearsal without a completed script and a completed score. That's not entirely true, because I mean the way Steve worked back in the Pacific Overtures days, he always had three songs to write before, you know, when the show was in rehearsal. And there were there were three songs he was still writing while we were in rehearsal in New York. And it seemed that seemed completely natural to me. He and I would talk about a moment in the show, mm -hmm. and he would say, you know, if you could write me write this monologue, then I'll take it. And I thought, okay, this is how this gets done. But since then, you know, now the shows go through endless workshops and rehearsals, yeah. so that you really, by the time you've got actors in a room. It's going to change. Right. The script's going to change, and the score's going to change. But you kind of have a full package. I can't remember the last time I went in a room when that wasn't the case. Do you like being in the rehearsal room, or do you like to go away for a bit and then see what the actors and directors have done with your words? I like being in the rehearsal room when things are going well. <laughs> uh, otherwise, I'd rather not be in the rehearsal room. And um, but for the most part, I th I actually think uh, the. For the most part, the best work gets done if the director is left alone with the material for a brief period of time, and then you drop in and take a look at it, and then talk about what's working and, and what isn't. That's not necessarily the case, but and I have certainly have worked both ways. Um, uh, but you know, especially with a the musical, there's a, a lot of time is being devoted to singing and dancing. Yeah. And there, that's all book two, so it's important to see it, but it, maybe it's better to see it when it's closer to being completed. Is it a difficult process to be told, all right, uh, write me a monologue, and from that monologue that you've created, I'm going to take something from that and make a song out of it, and then your monologue goes away? I, you know, I, 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 I have often said to people, if you, you know, if, if you absolutely need to hear your best words on stage, just be a playwright. <laughs> Don't be a book writer for musicals. I mean... I, I have been very fortunate in my collaborators. So, um, you know, if I write a monologue that's a page and a half and it goes to Steve and it comes back as a song, I'm fine with that, yeah. you know? Um, but, I, but I can't think of, I can't, you know, Michael Corey and, and um, Scott Frankel and I wrote a show called Happiness that Stroh directed at Lincoln Center. And there was one, there was a moment in it which came completely from me. It's so we're back to baseball. Um, you know, I, I wanted a. I said, it was one character. It's like, how do we finish this character? He's got to remember this particular moment in his life that meant the most to him, more to him than any other moment. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, what if he, when he was a kid, if his dad was a doorman and took him to the World Series? The doorman had been promised seats behind the dugout by somebody who lived in the building, and then that fell through, so they couldn't go at all. And then his dad wakes him up and says, you know what, the hell, we're going. And they wind up in the, in the bleachers at the polo grounds. 
and having been to the Polo Grounds and bleachers, you can't see anything. It's, I mean, the way the ballpark was shaped. It was, but that was the, they were there for the game where Willie Mays made the greatest catch mm-hmm. in history, and he made it with his facing the bleachers. So it's, you know, if you look at those pictures, it's like if you were sitting in the cheapest seat in the Polo Grounds, you saw something that nobody else mm-hmm. in the world saw. So I, I mean, I went home and I wrote a two and a half page monologue, and I gave it to 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 Michael, and he turned it. He and Scott turned it into this just terrific song. Mm-hmm. And I don't miss uh, the fact that nobody heard what I wrote on stage, but uh, you know, occasionally I'll go back and look at it because it makes me feel good. Yeah. What are some of your favorite books to musicals beyond your own? <laughs> well, they're probably you know, um, uh, I'm a huge admirer of all the books that uh, Lapine has written. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, you know, the books to, particularly the book to End of the Woods is in a, just his, his capacity to write um, economical dialogue mm-hmm. that delivers everything that, that the, the book requires and to do it with wit um, is kind of breathtaking. Um, so I mean, I you know that Sunny in the Park, Passion, uh, you know, really his shows. I mean, some of the other ones are obvious things like Gypsy. Uh, yes. You know, they're they're these enormous achievements, and um, and some you know which um, in musicals which are feel largely sung through, like Sweeney Todd. You know, Hugh Wheeler's book for Sweeney Todd is an amazing achievement. I mean, that's a there's a lot of plot there, <laughs> and yeah. and um, the fact that you know. It, the story is organized in a way which allows Steve basically to tell the whole story is something. If a new book writer were to come to you and say, give me a few pieces of advice before I tackle my first book, what, what were some of those I, you know, I, pearls of wisdom? I, I, I think I would, mostly I would say, um, you know, go to the theater, go see musicals all the time. And um, and read them. I mean, people tend to to musicals become cast albums, and it requires an effort uh, to go get the the script and read it. Mm-hmm. Um, but just listening to a cast album doesn't really tell you everything you need to know if you want to write musicals at all. And um, um, you know, it's it's Marsha Norman teaches a, a course in musical theater book writing, and it's inter- It's a good course. It's interesting, uh, and she's really smart. But honestly, I think there's, there's nothing that replaces just exposing yourself to as much good stuff as possible. And stuff that doesn't work, you know. Yeah. I think the, sort of the, what people need to take on board quickly is the requirement to write with enormous economy um, and also um, the necessity to, to create a kind of language that feels completely naturalistic but which allows people to burst into song. If you took a scene from a really good play and put it in a musical, you'd go, why are people talking that way? Mm-hmm. If you took a really good scene from a musical and put it in a play, you'd go, why are people talking that way? So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of an, a, it's an acquired skill, I think, but it doesn't get taught much. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, other than Marsha, I'm not sure, and, and I know there, it's taught at Yale, um, but other than that, it's, you know, I, I think it's sort of, most people consider it the thing that kind of takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. You know, they go, well, they don't call them booksicles, they call them musicals, but, <laughs> it, which is, you know, I, I totally understand that, but, but the degree to which 
shows rise or fall based on the quality of the book is something that most people are really not aware of. Yes. It's hard to think of a score, uh, rather of a show with a great score and a bad book that actually works. Yes. You, there are some shows you can think of that don't have great scores but have good books and the show does work. Yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah. So Pacific Overtures, you know, happened and what did you say, all right, I'm going to be a librettist for the, you know? No. <laughs> I, I mean, I still didn't know. Um, um, well, I was still trying to figure out my life yeah. and even now at oh. 10 minutes to 11, nice. I'm still the, pro- the process... <laughs> Gentlemen, the process continues. But it was, I had, um, uh, I was on the Harvard Lampoon when I was at Harvard, mm-hmm. and two buddies of mine had come to New York and started the National Lampoon. Yeah. And so I was a, like a major contributor to the magazine from its first issue. You know, I came back to New York, and I, and I, I was still working at the Lampoon, and Animal House was released. Yes. And when Allen House was released, the, the three or four of us who were editors of the magazine immediately became screenwriters. Not because we knew how to write movies, but because somebody in Hollywood thought, well, maybe lightning can strike twice. So I, I spent a, a few years writing uh, scripts for different studios with some success, but they never got made. Huh. And it, was, it became very frustrating. And I, and I came back to New York and... Um, I thought, well, this is me figuring out my life again, right? Yeah, right. So you moved to L.A. and you spent... No, no, no I, said, I never moved to L.A. Okay. Yeah, I, I, my, my wife and I had, had a little girl, oh. uh, little Laura, and, and um, I actually thought L.A. was a, not a healthy place to raise children. <laughs> I think but the movie business did not strike me as a healthy place to raise children. <laughs> but anyway, you know, but I didn't, I didn't... Not what I wanted to do anyway. So I came back to New York. I walked in the apartment... Um, my most recent screenplay had just sort of hit a wall. My daughter was watching Sesame Street on television. I'd never seen it before. And I looked at it and I thought, you know what? This is worthy work. It's very witty. And so I wonder if there's a way to add this to the theater work I'm not going to recommit to. And I did. I mean, I, I, I wound up being a Sesame Street writer and I had a ball there for, you know, I was do as much or as little as my theater career permitted. But meanwhile, um, you know, uh, Tim Krause, who had been my roommate in college, and it was Russell Krause's son, Tim's mom, Anna, a wonderful woman, um, wanted the two of us to write a new book for Anything Goes. Uh. Because there hadn't been a first-class revival of Anything Goes since 1934, because although the collection of songs was extraordinary, the yeah. book had been sort of thrown together on a train on the way to Boston. And so, as they were back then, I didn't want to do it because I, I said, well, if people like it, it'll all be about Cole Porter, and if they don't like it, it'll all be about how we screwed it up, you know. And but eventually, I said yes, and we, you know, we did it at, at um, Lincoln Center, and it was a, it was a, Jerry Zachs directed it. Yeah. Uh, Jerry was hugely helpful in terms of sort of shaping and 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 rethinking the book. Greg Mosher was the artistic director at the time. Greg played the same role, and it was one of those things where everything just fell into place. And the casting was sublime, and um, it just it fit into the Beaumont perfectly. And so all of a sudden, you know, I had this hit show, and I thought. The thing to do if you have a hit show is to immediately, it's Hal Prince having a meeting in his office the next day, start on the next one. So I called Steve. Steve Sondheim and I had remained good friends, but I had an idea for a show, and I, I went to talk to him, and he wasn't sure. I was like, kind of, yeah, it feels more like a movie. And he said, what do you think about this, Assassins? 
And I said, um, say some more. And, and so we, he and I you know, began to talk about a show about people who had either killed or tried to kill the president. Yeah. And um, it came from a, Steve having read a script when he was a judge for a musical theater competition. Guy named Charlie Gilbert had submitted a musical about a kind of a shadowy conspiracy of Vietnam vets comes back to the United States and is enlisted in an attempt to kill the president. We were not interested in that at all. Mm. We were interested in something different. But it, um, that was the next show. And then after that, everything else just kind of was, I was done with everything else and just focused on musical theater for yeah. you know the next 35 years, yeah. whatever it is. And before we talk about Assassins, um, in terms of working on Anything Goes, what, uh, what, what are some things that book writers should be aware of when it comes to structure? We, you know, the, um, uh, the, the way Tim and I described our task was to try and create, uh, recreate the show that had been written in 1934, but to restructure it and to give it a kind of a pace and speed so that it would feel to an audience as if it was a contemporary show, but that had been written in 1934. In other mm -hmm. words, there should be nothing anachronistic, or there was no jokes about the fact that we were writing it 50 years later. Right. It should just feel like a, a perfected version of what could have been written in Boston 50 mm -hmm. years earlier. And you know, w w we were we were dealing with a show which had uh, these sort of structural fundamentals in place, but not always in the right place. Mm -hmm and songs which, most of which did not really function as book songs. So that the task in that case was to kind of x-ray it and then kind of move the plot around as best we could and then do the same thing with the songs. That's the only crack I've ever taken at, at revising somebody else's old work. Yeah. And in that case, because the show was so old um, and it really came from a different era, it, it felt like it was a, it was in, it was a, the exercise was a lot of fun. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you looking for a place to rehearse in New York City that is clean, spacious, and most importantly, affordable? Come check out Shetler Studios and Theaters, our wonderful host for these podcasts. Shetler is centrally located on West 54th Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue, right in the heart of the theater district. Right in the heart. You'll find music, dance, and acting studios, complemented by two black box theaters and six presentation venues. The professional facilities, inspired environment, and expert industry staff combined to 
provide the New York artist with an unparalleled studio experience. Visit their website at shetlerstudios.com. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. Shetler Studios and Theaters is our home for recording the legends of Broadway, and we hope that you make it your artistic home, too. That's Shetler, S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. See you here. Who are some of your comedy influences? Who are some of your comic heroes? When I was a, I had a, actually, I had a, a, there was a week when I was a teenager where two things happened to me. One was uh, I went to see Beyond the Fringe. And I thought, wow. My idea, sort of my calcified idea of, of, how to be funny was I Love Lucy. Yeah. I Love Lucy's really funny. But there was a certain kind of, even American stand-up comics, kind of, you know, the guys who were on the Sullivan show. Everybody was living sort of inside that, under that yeah. bubble. And Beyond the Fringe was, was from, uh, obviously, another world. But, but I thought, wow. And the same week, um, somebody gave me a copy of The 2,000-Year-Old Man, at, which felt as though it like it blew the top of my head off in a different way. But I thought there are ways to be funny um, that uh, I need to find out about because mm. they're, they're not all I married Joan. Uh, you know, or even, you know, Carol Burnett, a show which I always liked. But there's, there's, a, there's stuff going on on the other side of the line um, that Lenny Bruce is doing, mm. for example, that um, I, I need to pay attention to. And, you know, I mean, Richard Pryor's early work also had a, I mean, I just thought it was incredible, mm. you know. So it was like comedy, dangerous comedy seemed to me to be the best kind. Yeah. And is that what drew you to the National Lampoon? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it was. I mean, the thing about the Lampoon existed, and this is, I'm really dating myself now, but the Lampoon existed for four or five years before Saturday Night Live went on the air. So for those four or five years, it really was the hippest place to write that kind of comedy. Yeah. And then Saturday Night, I kind of moved to Saturday Night Live. Belushi and you know uh, uh, Bill Murray, they were all around the Lampoon in a, a show called Lemmings that the Lampoon oh, yeah. produced. Right. And, and so, yeah. I mean, it, one of the things about working at Lampoon was that you, we were relatively well-paid to behave really badly. And um, <laughs> that, that seems to me to be a, it's a goal in life. Win. <laughs> it's hard to, yeah, it's like yes. a win-win. You know, it's like, um, uh, and uh, so I had a really good time. But, but also, it was a good time, but also it reinforced the idea that, you know what, you, you need to do what you think is, just do it. Yeah. And some people are going to like it, and some people are going to be offended or, or not like it, but you just have to, it's sort of a cheesy thing to say, but if you try and calculate the, the kind of impact you're going to have, you're not in the best place mm. to be creative, it seems to me. How fast are you in terms of rewrites? If, if you're in a rehearsal hall and someone says to you, this isn't working, do you have to go off and think about it, or can you come up with a solution? Right I kind of have to go off and, and yeah. think about it. I have to recover from being embarrassed in front of the actors. <laughs> It's like, oh, it doesn't work, and it's never going to work. They've been, you know, for the last 45 minutes, they've been walking around going, I can't believe I have to say this stuff, you know. So I have to go, and I have to, you know, 
go to the gym and then sit down again and do it over again. I know. I mean, I was in a rehearsal room with Michael Corey on uh, Happiness when there was a lyric that didn't work for a variety of reasons. And I remember Stroh turning to Michael and saying, these four lines, and, and Michael went, and he, out of his mouth came four perfect lyric lines. And um, I really, I hated him a lot in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> it was good for the show, but uh, yeah, it was not good ego. for my ego. <laughs> no. yeah. uh, now going back to Assassins, how do you even come up with a shape yeah. for what this is? Wild. You know, it... It, um, Steve and I, Steve and I just gave ourselves permission to just talk about these characters, to kind of figure out why we found them interesting, and um, at a certain point, I realized, oh, um, I was a teenager when Kennedy was shot, and it had I hadn't thought about it, but it was it was an, it was a, a very profound experience of loss for me. It's hard to convey to anybody who wasn't a kid during that period. I went to. Washington, I stood on the sidewalk when the funeral cortege went oh. by. And on some level, the, the event had never made emotional sense to me. It's like, how could this one angry little guy create this extraordinary worldwide pain and grief? Mm-hmm. And, and the Warren Commission and the, uh, you know, that was the Cubans, it was the CIA, none of that seemed to me to have anything to do really with anything in terms of exploring where the event came from and, and, and what its consequences were. And the more Steve and I talked, I thought, oh, you know what? Um, I, I'm interested in this because it's a way of trying to figure out if there's another way of looking at the Kennedy assassination that might provide people with a way of thinking about it or experiencing it that might be helpful, whatever helpful means. And um, nobody had ever taken these characters, these assassins, really and gathered them together to, to look at them as a group. The, um, there was one book by a guy named James Clark that was really interesting, where he sort of examined them as a group. For the most part, they were considered, you know, isolated loners, and they'd articulated wildly different reasons for attacking the president. And so there didn't seem to be any point in bringing them together because their grievances were so specific to them. And Steve and I thought, well, if, you, if we do gang them together uh, and let them bump up against each other, is there some common grievance that might be behind what each of them is, has articulated for the reason to try and shoot the president? And so the, we created a structure which, which, requi- which, was, which produced that. Some people think that, you know, think that, well, the show's a review. It's not. I mean, it, we, we, we brought everybody together in the first scene. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows who anybody else is. And then sort of trapped them in a kind of limbo where they're forced in a variety of ways to deal with each other. They bump up and they annoy each other. Um, you know, Guiteau tries to pick up Sarah Jane Moore, um, which pisses her off. Um, and the idea was to create encounters for them which would cut to the heart of what their fundamental unhappiness was. And after they'd all had that experience, to then bring them back together in the brilliant song that Steve wrote, uh, Another National Anthem. Mm -hmm. And then now they could look at each other and go, oh, you know what? You're actually, you're upset about the same thing I'm upset about. Um, You're a little bit more like me than I thought you were. Mm -hmm. And then they would form a kind of a, a, a team, and they would go to Dallas to recruit their next, I mean, it's awful to I get up, you know. It's, I get emotional 
talking about it because mm-hmm. it's because I mean the show deals with with an awful event, right. um, and, but it seemed, you know, if the theater isn't a place to deal with those kinds of awful events in order to give the audience an experience they haven't expected, where else are you going to do it? Yes. But that's why that's where the shape came from. It's like let's get start them here. They have nothing to do with each other get them to the point where they actually feel like they do have something to do with each other, then send them you know, to Texas. And I wrote that long scene at the end, not with the expectation that, would, that it was going to be performed without music, but when Steve and I looked at it, I mean, he said, this, you know, this doesn't want to have a song in it. We'll get, you know, we'll, it'll come back to music at the end. So um, I work, we, that experience, uh, collaborating with Steve, that experience writing that show is the most satisfying experience I ever had, without question. Well, in part because the material is very personal to me, but you know, Steve is an, 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 ex, an extraordinary collaborator. He's, he's open, he listens, he chews on stuff, he wants to know what you think about a song that's kind of half done, is this the right idea? And particularly with that material, we had the best possible back and forth, you know. Do you think you came to any sort of closure about your own experiences? Uh, in the sense that, um, uh, the, the show usually makes me cry, mm-hmm. so it's like, does that mean the answer is no? I don't think so. I think that, I think the show is, is, um, I think the show's honest, and I think if people listen to it, they'll hear something which is a valuable view of these events that take place in the United States, and will give them something to consider and think about when they leave the theater. Mm-hmm. I've always, you know, for 25 years, resisted summing the show up in any way. I'm not going to do it now. <laughs> but, it, but yes, no, I, I, I feel completely satisfied with what Steve and I wrote. It's like almost everything else I've written, when I see it again, it's like, oh, why didn't I fix that? Why didn't I fix this? Sure. Assassins feels like we got it. We, we accomplished what we set out to accomplish. Reaction to this show seemed to be... Yeah. What, what, were, what were you expecting? Yeah. You know, I... I, I Steve and I were understood that a show about assassinating the president was never going to push cats out of the Winter Garden Theater, right? <laughs> um, but when you, Fair. when you, I think, I think, and I think this is true of, I assume it's true of, of, of people after they've chosen something to write about that's important to them. Once you, you get inside it and, and it becomes really compelling and you're really, it, and, and you feel like you're, you're accomplishing what you want to accomplish, the expectation without thinking about it is that other people are going to connect to it in the same kind of visceral way that you have. And so when the show opened at Playwrights and, and uh, the re- critics basically said, that no, we're not having this. Um, um, I don't think we were surprised, but, but, I, but we were, but I was, uh, but yes, I was. You know, I thought the show would be, would be taken Seriously, it's not the right word. That people would approach it the way they do now, yes. which is which is to understand the intention, and to work with the ideas inside it. I mean, I have my my computer's Google alert set for assassins because I'm curious to know what people make of it when it's produced now, mm-hmm. and whether it's almost universally it's a college campus or it's a professional production. 
critics write about it exactly the way we would have wanted them to write about it when it was first produced. Um, they understand what the intention was. They understand the way in which it's meant to leave the audience in an uncomfortable place. Um, so they'll have to kind of deal with the material when they leave the theater. Um, and I guess on some level we expected that when it opened, but that's not what we got. Uh, we were lucky because uh, the next year, Sam Mendes opened the Donmar Warehouse with his production of it, a really, really good production. And there, the critics in part, because it wasn't their country, it was right. a show about America, not about Britain. But um, they got it, I mean, and, and they really got it. And so in a sense, we sort of got the show, we got the show back within the year. But it wasn't, it really wasn't until Joe Mantello's production, yeah. The Roundabout, I mean, and Joe just got it completely, he just got it. The production was sort of perfect, everything about it. It wasn't until then that the show was sort of rehabilitated, it's an odd word, but, but suddenly it was, you know, I mean, it won more Tonys that year than, it won more Tonys that year than any other show, yeah. which is a, you know, I promise you, standing on stage at, at Radio City Music Hall, uh, you know, looking at people who, uh, in 1991, would have chased us down the street and beaten us with clubs without giving us this award it was an odd experience. But um, it just, I think in part of it, it just took time. People want The audience needed to evolve? I, mean, I think the audience needed to catch up with it. I think that people needed to live for a little while with the idea of what the show is about. The cast album, it, the, you know, the cast album was brilliant. Yeah. And, and so people had access to that for a period of time. I think a lot of people, so a lot of people coming into Studio 54 probably knew the score and had heard the last scene on, on the record. Maybe not, but certainly the critics had. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, um, but that was, it was really important for that production to be as good as it was. And Joe just got it, nailed it. And then after Assassins, you do something very family friendly, which is big. Yeah. <laughs> so. Switch, yeah. Switching gears, in, yeah, in a major it, way. I, you know, I, I, um, um, uh, Richard Maltby, David Child were good friends of mine, oh. and I, I think they're, you know, uh, you know, I think their work is really brilliant. Yes. And um, it was their idea, and and um, they came to me with it. And I, I was reluctant, not because, you know, oh, it's sunny and cheerful. I only want to write things which are dark and difficult. Um, you know, a, a contact being the best example of a big affirmative piece of yeah. theater that I ultimately worked on. The concerns with Big were the, the movie, had, it was only a few years since the movie had come out, and it had had a real a star performance in it. And the movie, is, the movie tells that story kind of perfectly. If you go back and look at the movie again, it's, you know, it, it's just, it's good. And it, it really delivers everything that's inside the story, it seems to me. And so I was kind of, well, I don't know, I don't know. And then David Richard wrote one song kind of as an experiment, a brilliant song called uh, I Want to Know. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, you know what? Maybe there actually is a way to tell the story again using music as a way to access something that couldn't quite be teased out of it when it was being told on screen. And so, yeah, we dove in and, and um, you know, it, it I think, you know, I, I saw it at the York uh, a couple of years ago, and um, it's a good show. David, the score's good, and, and um, uh, you know, it, it'd be nice if there was a, a, 
another production at some point, but it's also okay if there isn't. The best thing, honestly, the best thing for me about the show was that, uh, you know, was meeting Mike Ockert and Susan Stroman. Yes. And, you know, <clears throat> they became, you know, Stroh remains one of my closest friends, but Mike and I got to be really, really good friends too. And so, you know, I came away from this show with these two people added to my, to my personal life, but also ultimately to my professional life in an important way. And that can happen with shows. What made uh, Mike Ockren such a great director? Mike was one of the most, um, Mike was one of the most affirmative, positive people I know. And he also, Mike, you know, the t-shirts that now say, uh, uh, keep calm and carry on. Mike brought that into the room with him. Mike was absolutely unflappable and, um, he had a cheerful way of eliciting the best work from people. And, um, uh, you know, it, he, he, was, he was a sweet, sweet man. He knew what he wanted, and, mm -hmm. and he got it on stage. And, you know, his best work, um, you know, things like Crazy For You are, you know, the best example of that. Um, Mike really liked to deliver a joyous experience. And um, not because it was way to sell tickets but because it's who he was and it was his view of his view of of life I, you know I told the story at his memorial service about when I was a kid I'd seen a, a movie called Billy Liar do you guys remember Billy Liar at all Tom Courtney's first film so he lives in the Midlands he's got some cheesy job he's miserable and Julie Christie shows up and tries to and says come to London with me and <clears throat> And he gets on the train with her, and at the end, he, he loses his nerve. He gets off the train, and he walks back up the hill to what's going to be the dreary rest of his life. And Mike made a movie that was not dissimilar that Willie Russell wrote. I can't remember what the end of it is. And it sort of builds to the same point, except the main character is a woman, not a, not a, a, a man. And she's sort of, she's given up, and she's going to stay in this city in the middle. And she's in the, she's, somehow she's in the men's room in this club, and she can hear this van pulling away outside, which has got this rock and roll band that she wants to go with. And there's a pause. And she takes the condom machine off the wall. She throws it through the, through the window. She crawls out and dives in the back of the bus and goes off to London. And that was Mike's view of, of how life should work as opposed to the Tom Courtney yeah. miserable rest. And, and that's, who, that's who Mike was. And I think he, can, he absolutely conveyed that to to the people he was working with, to the actors he was working with. He was, a, he was a wonderful man. When did you become president of the Dramatists Guild? 1999. And what prompted you to become the president of the Dramatists Guild? I, had, I was elected to the Dramatists Council, the Guild Council, I think in 1991. And Peter Stone, um, God bless him, had, had been president at that point for, I guess, about 10 years. And it was, you know, it's, it's not... Um, it's a good idea for people not to be president for 17 years, mm -hmm. as like in North Korea or in you know, yeah. pick your pick your place. And Peter Peter was a, a, did a terrific job, but it was time for somebody else to be president. And Peter sort of picked me out in part because I'd been to law school, so and so I understood contracts mm -hmm. in a way that a lot of people don't. Um, and um, so I, I was sort of the, you know, I, mean, I had to get elected. People voted for me. I wasn't anointed. But it was, but I'd always been, you know, um, a union guy. Um, 
and the guild's not a union because, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, but it, it operates as, you know, a collection of, of people who have a similar interest and, and try and pursue those interests as a group. Um, and it also felt to me like actually it was a way to reach back to what I spent three years learning in law school mm. and, um, and, and dump it into what my new life had, had become about. And so I liked that. I liked it. And it was, um, you know, the council, it still is, but I mean, you know, the people who sat around the room in, in those days, it was like Edward Albee and John yeah. Ware and Wendy Wasserstein. It's like the guild, has, oh, the guild council has always been made up of, of people who are working sort of, uh, you know, um, in the middle of it, not people who have time on their hands because they can't get their stuff produced, so they're going to devote their work to, their time to union work. And, um, you know, having to, to gavel Edward Albee into, into submission from time to time was, 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 it was an experience. I liked it. I, I liked it. Those of us who might, may not know, what does the Guild do? The Guild, the guild is a trade association that, that advocates for and represents the interests of playwrights. Uh, it used to be fundamentally playwrights in New York because that's where plays got written. Now it's uh, it's a nationwide organization, mm -hmm. and um, you know it has established over the course of time um, minimums and standards which are enshrined in uh, you know the guild's uh, first class contract um, uh, minimums and standards which are have become accepted industry wide. Um, you can't change a word that a playwright writes without the playwright's permission. Right. Um, playwrights have an absolute right to attend their own rehearsals. I mean, the list of protections uh, goes on. Mm -hmm. And the Guild really established those, you know, 100 years ago, 75, whatever it is, mm -hmm. when uh, playwrights banded together and said, you know, if we're going to do this work, we need to be compensated in a particular way, and our work needs to be respected in a particular way, you know. Um, in Hollywood, they, they pay you a lot of money, but they can fire you. In the theater, they don't, pay, yeah. they don't pay you a whole lot of money, but, they, but you, the work belongs to you. Exactly, yeah. Well. Um, what do you think are some of the major issues facing the Guild today or facing playwrights today that you like to see the Guild tackle? Or well, you know, as I said, as the, the organization has become um, um, a, a more of a national organization, the preoccupations and the problems that playwrights have around the country uh, become a, 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 a significant part of the conversation. The, the conversation around what copyright means in this new world is usually talked about in terms of what you can post on the internet and what needs to be taken down because it violates copyright. But um, you know, I don't know if you know a book Called Outrageous Fortune that Todd London, Ben no. Pevsner. Oh, you should you should get a copy of it. It's an analysis of how playwrights make a living. It probably came out about five years ago. Okay. And the basic answer is playwrights can make a living. And even <laughs> successful playwrights, you know, tend to make most of their money by teaching, mm. um, and not from royalties. Um, but the the assault on copyright, the possibility that copyright will be drift into another place, it seems to me to be the biggest threat to playwrights in the country at the moment. Because if you can't protect your work from being changed by somebody else, if you can't own your work so that you can make a living when it's performed, mm -hmm. then playwriting is 
which is already under threat, I think is, you know, will be increasingly under threat. There is an idea, you know, there does seem to be an idea which didn't exist previously, but which seems to exist now and a lot of college campuses as well, that, that text is available as a starting point as opposed to an ending point, that you can take Death of a Salesman and you can cut it up and chop it, and make it short, or rewrite parts of it if you want to, because it's just where where the, the theatrical event begins with the play, as opposed to the play being sacrosanct. Yes. And you know the guild monitoring that and and uh, you know making sure that the drift in that direction is controlled is one of the main things that the guild does now. Yeah. And then are you open if somebody were to come to you and say, we're doing Assassins and we want to change this scene or we want to cut that scene or move that there? Are you... As long as, as, long as somebody asks and understands that if the answer is no, the answer is no, I, have, I welcome people who have, you know... Uh, I mean, just had a conversation with somebody who, in England who wanted to, who wanted to um, do some gender switching with the characters. And I said, you can't. They're historical characters. I appreciate your asking. And for budgetary reasons, they wanted to kind of double some of the assassin characters with the bystanders. And the answer was no for the same reason. But Steve and I have said yes to a variety of requests. And um, the same is true of other shows, too. Yeah. As long as you ask, then there's a conversation. You know, and every, I think everybody's interested in seeing, in seeing their work it's not a movie. A movie is a movie. It's only right. it's done, done once. It is yeah. what it is. A, a play or a musical is always a different experience every time there's a new production. And you want that, right? Really, yeah. you want that. But you but if it involves something that involves, if there's a change that undermines the fundamental intention of the piece, then that's off limits unless the authors have said, yeah, go ahead. I'd like to see what that looks like. Yeah. Uh, one show that seemed to have changed a lot uh, over a long period of time was the Bounce Road Show, Wise Guys. Uh, how did that? I mean, no, I don't need titles I mean forgetting. exactly. Uh, how did it, that's it? I think. Uh, when did that? When did you guys start working on that? And then take us through some of the big changes. Obviously, that happened because there were Steve. Now. Steve called me one day, and <clears throat> you know, he asked me if I'd ever heard of a guy named. Uh, Wilson Meisner. Mm -hmm. I said no. He'd been interested in Wilson Meisner for years. Yes, yeah. And um, he said, well, there's a book about him. Uh, you want to give it a read? I said, yeah. And so I, I read the book, and um, the book's about the brothers, really, about Addison and Wilson. Steve was preoccupied with Wilson. I said, I, 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 said, I, I, said I, I find Wilson interesting, but I think what's really interesting is the relationship between these two guys. And beyond that, you know, the period of time in the United States when they were living their lives and um, the way in which they were living their lives yeah. uh, in a country that didn't require them, uh, to put it succinctly, to clean up after themselves. Mm. I mean, Wilson made one mess after another and then just moved on to the next adventure. And um, the country has been um, required to clean up after itself in a way that was not required. So I thought it was a good story to, t story to tell. I think the reason it went through uh, so many different incarnate revisions, changes, whatever you want to call them, productions, was that 
as was not the case with assassins, or for that matter, with Pacific Overtures, Steve and I were never quite on the same page at the beginning of the project. One of the things I tell people about you know, collaborating is that I feel like the first thing, the most important thing to do is to talk forever. Just talk. I mean, the, whoever you think you're going to work with, talk about the material until you arrive at a point where you, you have, feel like you've kind of become one person, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's like, all right, now there's a playwright in the room. Part of the playwright's going to write the music. Part of the playwright's going to write the lyrics. Part of the playwright uh, is going to write the scenes. We never quite arrived at that point. But we, we trusted each other, obviously, had enormous respect for each other. So it's, it's okay, let's get started. And I think we probably started um, uh, sooner than we should have, although I don't know if more talking would have gotten us to a clearer place. Mm -hmm. we, it's possible that we needed to go through two or three versions of the show that weren't right mm -hmm. in order to get to the one that felt as though it was. And Oscar used this at the public, and then John Doyle came in to direct, enormously helpful. Uh, Oscar initially in focusing, forcing us to focus on what's the one page you both want to get on. Yeah. All right. Let's get on that page, you know. So th I mean, that's really what the process is like. And even though there had been that production at Goodman, there had been the cast recording and all of that, but it was still considered unfinished? Yes, then? yes. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, w w without question. I mean, it certainly felt unfinished I, to me, and I think it felt unfinished to Steve. And, um, you know, you're right. Yeah, it, 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 well, part of the reason, you know, I think it felt unfinished was it had been at the Goodman and at the Kennedy Center, but it had not moved from the Kennedy Center to New York. There hadn't been a New York production. And it's not, I mean, there was never a New York production of the Kentucky Cycle, which won the Pulitzer Prize, but this was a Steve Sondheim musical, and it felt like it, it in order to, to really be, and, and we were not satisfied with the show at, yeah. at the Kennedy Center, okay. right? I mean, it wasn't, we hadn't, we knew we hadn't finished it, so, um, uh, and we needed to. That doesn't mean we, we necessarily would have, and that's why thank you, Oscar Eustace, yeah. but um, we did. And then were you ultimately pleased with yes. how it yeah. came out? Yeah. No, I think that, I think that what, what um, you know, uh, John Doyle's production, The Public, which he then sort of replicated at the Chocolate Factory mm -hmm. in London, um, uh, you know, brought, it, it brought the show in for a landing in a way that we were satisfied with. And Gary Griffin did a terrific production at Chicago, Chicago Shakes, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe three years ago, and it was it was great to see the show separated from this long history. You yeah. know, I was like, okay, let's go look at now. It's, Does it work? I haven't yeah. seen it for three years, <laughs> yeah. and um, it was like, oh, yeah, it's good. Right. It does it, it does yeah. what we wanted it to do. Yeah. Great. What's next for you? What are you working on next? Um, um, Roseanne Cash and John Leventhal, her husband, uh, uh, and I have written a, a musical adaptation of Norma Ray. All right, and um, we did a reading which we liked a lot. It was Greg Mosher's idea. I mean, mm -hmm. he sort of came to us, and uh, hopefully, that's we've got. We're looking at what we hope is going to be a production in a regional theater sooner rather than later. So that would be the next. There are other things I'm working on, yeah. but that would that would be the next thing I'd like to see on its feet. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And what's your writing process like? Do you is there possible? <laughs> now, after all my life, I've just, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, no, no. but it's just like it's like, all my life. I've looked at David Ives is a buddy of mine, and like Ives, Ives has a room in his apartment. He's got a 
black paper over the windows and he goes in at nine in the morning and he comes out at noon and it's like, all right, man. And I, I, I've spent my whole life trying to create some kind of structure to that, but it's not. It ain't gonna happen. It's not gonna, if it hasn't happened yet, I don't think it's gonna happen. Do I've always, I'll say this, I've always liked to write in libraries, in large open spaces where there's just enough of a distraction. So you look up, somebody's walking yeah. across the room and then you go back to work. And I, I do a lot of work now in the Columbia. I live, we live on Riverside Drive up by Columbia. Yeah. And I work in the Columbia Library a lot. Yeah. Huh. That's, that's It's comfortable. Yeah. They yeah. need better chairs. You need better chairs. <laughs> otherwise, in Columbia. But otherwise, it's, uh, I, it's good. We usually ask our guests, like, you know, if you could go back in time and see one show, what would it be? I'm going to switch it. One baseball game you could go back and see. Um. I would like to have been at the at the nineteen fifty four World Series game, yeah. sitting in those seats, those, those seats. Yeah. sitting yeah. in those <laughs> seats that I wrote about. I mean, I was lucky enough because you know my 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 mom was a baseball fan, and, mm. you know, so I'm still a Brooklyn Dodger fan. That's how old I am, and I was, you know, I was driven into town a couple of times to see the Dodgers play at the Polo Ground. So I saw Mays play, mm. saw Mantle play, I saw Jackie Robinson play, I saw those guys play, you know, and that was was. Um, thrilling um, but yeah I, I would like to actually been looking at that catch when he made it because even now when you look at the at the Ken, Ken Burns's series about baseball there's a section on the catch and it's just you can't believe what the guy did yeah it's amazing what team do you, are you a Yankees guy now? Yeah, I became like I, you know I was I hated the Yankees when I was growing up but I by the the collection of ball players they put together in the 90s the kind of Paul O'Neill, Derek Jeter, all the you know, Tino yeah. Martinez. It was just it was a charming group of guys since so I became, yeah, I became a Yankees fan. Okay. I'd like to, I, the Mets are hard to root for. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. they just are. It's, it's, and, and then you don't have time for me to go on about why I think that is. But um, <laughs> no, Part I like two. to go, I, I, I like to go out to the Yankees. Susan Waldman, who had a, a whole career in the musical theater before she became a broadcaster, is a buddy of mine, so I oh, like yeah. going out to the stadium. So yeah. you should have her on the show sometime. She's oh, great. Be fun. She's great. That'd be really fun. And this has been so much fun. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for, for joining us. So much it's been such a My pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Today's episode was recorded at Shetler Studios on 244 West 54th Street. Visit Shetler Studios to book your room today, and you could be as cool as us. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And friends, don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you guys can come in and help us out. Yes, in order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. The more ratings the more they'll come up in searches. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on Ratings and Reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us one star and make us feel as bad as Annie did in that weird production in Boston where Annie dreamed about being adopted and then ended the show back in the orphanage. True story, Rob was there. I saw it. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.